Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Alex and Millie. I, I called uh, Alex John at the beach, and he reminded me that that's his pastor name. So I was, I knew that. Um, how, many, how, how many of you have been to Uganda? Anybody been to Uganda? Okay. Um, Africa? Anybody been to a, look at that, look at that. So uh, beautiful, right in the center of Africa. I've been to Rwanda and uh, and we actually, I told them that I've been to Uganda. I just didn't get off the plane. But there I was. I got to land in Uganda, which is beautiful. It's a beautiful country, beautiful people, very similar to, to Rwanda. And uh, lots of rain, um, beautiful, uh, be- beautiful mountains of just bananas and avocados. And it's just, it's just beautiful country with beautiful people. And they just are so welcoming. They want to meet you. They want to talk English. And, and uh, it's just, it really is just a very, very special place uh, in Africa. Just that central part. Your, your nation is just absolutely beautiful. And, and uh, uh, so uh, I'm really excited what, because I think this sets up our, our message this morning very well. Because what you talk about is giving your lives to children and you have to understand in Africa and many of these nations, there's not a lot of social programs, governmental programs that help provide for children, especially orphans. And many of them, you know, even in Rwanda through the genocide and through disease, many, many uh, children are orphans. It is not unusual to find a child as an orphan who's lost their parents. And there's not a lot of programs, especially when they have disabilities or, or struggles. Uh, it's even more complicated, and often they're ne- neglected. And these are the ministries that are um, raising up a future generation. There's no question. I mean, most people come to Christ when they're young. We know that. The statistics are really clear. That if you, you can give them the message of Jesus early in their life, that's, so these are the kinds of ministries that are actually providing through generosity, through their generous support of these children and ministries that are raising up young disciples of Jesus. Um, I mentioned also the, the fact that the early church, and this is not in my notes, but when we talk about generosity, which we're going to talk about this morning, I want to frame it in the context of the early church for just a moment. Because when you, when you look at the history of the early church, you know how the early church spread into the Roman culture? It spread through generosity. It was, the, it was the willingness of the Christian communities to go outside of their own and provide for the poor and provide for the needy and the sick outside of themselves. And that, that's precisely the vision of the river, by the way. So when you look at the river church, the vision statement of the river, you know what our vision is? Passion for compassion. It's building a passion, a passion to have compassion on other people. And it's about people that aren't here. So the church exists in one way for people that aren't even here. They're for the people out there. That's why we exist, is to have a passion that's developed by relationship with God in order to have a compassion for people in the community. Beautiful story of generosity. And so we've been in this series of generosity, and we looked at, we began two weeks ago, I brought a message about the bigger barn. Do you remember that in Luke chapter 12? It's a great message. You got to go back and listen to it. I really mean that. I, I love the message, and 
I'd never heard that preached before, the whole idea of why, why was Jesus so upset with the guy that, that um, had a barn, that made more money, and he decided he was going to build a bigger barn. And, and the reason why Jesus was so upset with him not, was, was not because he had a barn full of grain. It wasn't the fact that he wanted to enjoy it. It was the fact that he decided the, he, with, with his overflow, he wanted to build a bigger barn. And what Jesus was pointing out is that do something with what God has given you, but don't hoard it. The last thing we are to do in life is hoard the resources that God has given us. Do Spend it. Enjoy it. Give it to your family. Give it to your friends. Give it away, but do not hoard it because that is that's the problem that Jesus went after. Last week, I, generosity is, is truly about our identity, who we are becoming. And Taylor did a great job of, of taking us through Matthew chapter 6. The, con, the conflict, the, the contrast between serving God and serving money. And where your, your treasure is, that's where your heart is. It's all about what, what do you, who's, where's your true identity coming from because that's going to shape your generosity. Here we go. This morning, we're going to talk about generosity as a life plan a life. It's a way of life. See, it's a plan, it's an identity, but it's also a way of life. Did you know that? That generosity is so, and here's my tagline, okay? Here's the tagline. Here's the takeaway. Generosity is more than simply writing a check. It's living a life of generosity. Does that make sense? It's wonderful to write a check, and you can write a check, and you can get involved. But what we're talking about is something so much bigger. This is a larger challenge. And the larger challenge is what are you going to do with your whole life? And Paul is going to take us through three ways to live a generous life in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me read the passage. I'm going to do a little introduction, and then we're going to jump into those three sections. And here we go. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, your Bible app, it's, it's well worth following along. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and here we go. So in verse 6, the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy, his understudy, and he's uh, encouraging him with this message to leave a great legacy. And he's now talking to the wealthy Christians in the first century. And he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Okay? That, I have read that and read that and read that. I think I finally understand. I'm going to explain to you in a second what in the world he's talking about. But godliness is actually really a good thing when accompanied with contentment. So we got to understand what godliness is, then we got to understand what contentment is, okay? Hold on to that. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take, we, we're not supposed to take anything out of the world, and you won't take anything out of the world. If you, we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich and fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men and women into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, you man of one, you, you uh, woman of God, flee from these things. You know, I'm going to jump down to verse 17. Paul then goes on to instruct those. He gives us a warning, and then he gives us an instruction. And the instruction is found in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. He's talking to us. 
He is literally talking to us. Not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of, of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is what? Life indeed. See that? He ties godliness and contentment to a life. It's a way of life. He ends with saying, this is the way of life for the believer. If we can understand this, we will understand the way of life for the Christian. Okay? And so he's going to look at three things, and we're going to talk about it. Money is a means, not an end. I'm going to talk a little bit about the fact that money is a means, not an end, to contentment. I want to talk briefly, number two, that over-concentration on money will lead to discontentment. An over-concentration will lead to discontentment. And finally, number three, the, thing, the third thing that I learned from this passage that I want to look at briefly is generosity is the only antidote to a squandered life. So you can live your life anyway. You can only live it once. And you can either invest it or squander it. And that's where Paul is coming down on. He's saying there's two options. That's it. And, and he wants us to live not a squandered life, but a life that's rewarding with an eter- with ter- eternal future. And the antidote to that is living a generous life. So that's, wh- that's what we're going to look at this morning just briefly. Um, it's a major shift in your thinking, and that's what I want. I, the whole point of this passage, I think, is shaping and reshaping our perspective. And Paul's giving us this tension between two value systems, one that the culture gives us and one that God gives us. And we live constantly between that tension. And it's difficult because what we find nationally is that um, generosity is built into our democracy. It was originally intended for people to live out their democracy with a sense of uh, um, not only um, self-provision, but, the, but helping other people. It was the basis of our origin as a nation was that we would be generous people for one another. So how are we doing as a nation? Well, I did a lot of research. And just, I'm just going to give you just a brief kind of my final summary statements about what I discovered. Because what I discovered is that a lot of the articles I read said that our, our generosity as a nation is decreasing, not increasing. And that, and that surprised me. And so I kind of dug in a little deeper to find out what is going on. Why is that? All sorts of reasons. Psychology today to uh, various articles. Um, uh, research programs. I, I looked at an article which was fascinating by um, CapitalResearch.org. It's a nonpartisan group that actually does research on giving and generosity in America. And what they discovered is that, yes, to traditional organizations and foundations, generosity has really tailed off almost 10% since last year. 10% decrease in people's willingness to give to the, kind of the more traditional way. But what this article went on to say is that it did that a lot of the statistics are based upon traditional giving of large organizations. It doesn't talk about the peer-to-peer giving. It doesn't talk about GoFundMe. I mean, 
A lot of money is raised through GoFundMe and a lot of these peer uh, organizations and other ways in which people are generous. And so at the same time that we're seeing a decrease in traditional giving, we're seeing an increase in giving to peer-to-peer and either non-traditional ways of giving, whether maybe you take off work and take care of your parent, or maybe you, um, you help. Uh, 60 million people live in a multi-generational home today. 60 million, that's a lot of people. In other words, parents are still caring for kids. I mean, there's a lot of ways that generosity is actually coming through in life. And I want to broaden our understanding and look at the fact that maybe in traditional, in a traditional way, we're seeing less and less um, gifts being made to traditional uh, organizations and charitable organizations, churches and things like that. But giving actually is happening in other different ways. Bottom line is, is it's still a struggle for a lot of people. And what psychology today actually pointed out was that a lot of times the wealthier people are, the less they give. And the reason why that is, is because they live with a greater level of insecurity. I pointed this out two weeks ago, but it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that the more you have, the less you give, because the more you struggle with your future. And I dug into that, like, why is that, that a lot of people struggle with their future when they, they it seems as though they have their future uh, taken care of? It's because of the sense of, uh, I have it, I earned it, entitlement, but it's also a sense that if I lose it, I fear falling out of my particular bracket that I'm in. And so I don't want to fall down or fall back. I want to continue to stay up. And so there's all sorts of, sorts of psychological reasons for that. David Brooks wrote a remarkable book, and I highly recommend it, called Second Mountain. David Brooks write for the New York, writes for the New York Times. If you've read any of his articles, he is, he's an outstanding writer. And I've, I've quoted him often, but David Brooks, I mean, in this book, Second Mountain, he quotes all my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, Malcolm Muggeridge, Richard Roy, all these different individuals. So he comes from a Christian basis, but he's not writing to a Christian audience about what it is that you're climbing, the mountain you're climbing. And the first mountain that you climb in your life is a mountain of acquisition, your career. But there's, there's often a transition, and the transition needs to happen in your life from a transition of acquisition to contribution. And the second mountain is called contribution. And he goes deeply into why that's the case, where does that come from? Why is that more moving? Why, why is that more convincing? Why does that, there's a longing within us for a, for a greater sense of purpose. And he, he's got some fantastic insights that I, I just don't have time to share. But bottom line is, is that we both struggle with it, but we also see that there's many ways to give. So my question this morning, even before we get into these three ideas, is how are we doing as a culture, as a society, as a Christian community with giving and being generous as a lifestyle, which is far more than simply writing a check. So I asked um, George Andrews, who is my son-in-law and one of our many financial planners that are part of our church. He works for an organization called Ron Blue and Associates that manages people's finances and helps them plan for the future and plan out well with the mindset of Christian stewardship. And I like that emphasis. So, George, would you come up and share just some of your thoughts? Grab that mic. 
Oh, I'll grab this mic right here. And I'd love for you. Morning, guys. Just to share a few thoughts. Yeah, as you hear yeah. that. Um, so Todd had teed this up a little bit for me and, and asked a couple of questions that he wanted me to kind of speak to. And I think the first one was from kind of my perception or my experience are, do I see people that are generous or are most people kind of in a position of struggling with it? I think that was the, the gist of your question. And so I, for me, again, since our organization is kind of, we put ourselves out there as a a Christian firm that wants to help people that, you know, are already kind of moving in that direction, basically figure out how they can be as, as generous as possible. So I see, I see quite a few people who are, you know, they've got the pedal to the floor, they're pushing all the chips in and they're going for the, the kingdom and the way they spend their money. Um, but again, that's not everybody. I think we're all kind of on a, probably on a, you know, a financial discipleship journey uh, just as we are with our you know, sanctification in Christ, we're not all exactly where we want to be, and we're just in a process of God kind of shaping us and molding us and getting us to release the grip on our on our finances. Um, so I would say, yeah, that's I, everybody's on a different page. There are some really mature people out there that love to give, and God's just called them to do that and given them the the resources, and they keep going for it, but. I think, I mean, I know for me personally, I love to just kind of share, even though I'm in this pretty much day in and day out, like for most people, I think what holds us back is just fear at the end of the day. Like we trust the Lord, but when it comes to our money, it's, it's always, I mean, for me too, each time I go to like write a check, give to an organization, I feel the call to do it. I want to do it, but there's that fear. There's that uncertainty of, okay, Lord, are you really going to take care of me if I do this? I I want to do this, but oh, I just don't know the future. I don't know what's coming next. It makes so much sense to plan and to save and to keep it. Uh, but as you've spoken about in this series, I think that's where having a plan, like what I love about what we're able to do is, is basically help people uncover their true giving capacity because that Again, fear for even wealthy people, people that have a lot that give a lot but that could give more, it, it typically is a little bit of fear. And when we can show them, wow, you could give this much more and, and be just fine, you know, that kind of pulls the, the lid off and allows the resources to really start so flowing. So it's, it's just an, a greater level of awareness that brings a, 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 a larger amount of security to be able to let go and have more faith. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's kind of a few different things. It's, it's understanding, you know, the, the word and what God says about generosity and truly believing it. Because when we look at how much God says about giving and how he's going to take care of us and really understand his heart for our generosity, like we would be all in, like God clearly says, this is the best way to go. Um, so we've got to understand that. We've got to answer the question of how much is enough for each one of us and kind of draw those finish lines because if we don't do that, and this is not an easy thing to do, I mean, it's a challenge to really like cap your lifestyle, draw finish lines and say, I'm going to give above that amount. But if we can try to do that, again, you've spoken to this in this series, 
if we can try to set those limits, and this is what we try to help people do, say, hey, if you get to whatever the number is, $3 million in your 401k, that's more than enough for you. Anything that you could save above and beyond that, you've already got enough. Why not just send it on ahead? Um, so yeah, and then, I mean, those two, so understanding the word, answering the question, how much is enough, and then thinking strategically, because there are, I mean, I mentioned a 401k, but our government has got to be one of the best governments in terms of generosity. They literally match our giving 50-50. So every dollar we give, depending on what tax bracket we're in, but they're going to give us a deduction for that. So we're, I mean, if you're a high earner, if you're making over three or right now, I think it's $450,000 a year approximately, they're literally going to give you 50 cents for every dollar you give essentially in tax saving. So those, I mean, when we, when we can get strategic and think about these things and do it really well, I mean, there's a lot of value to be gained in doing that. You yeah. think a lot of people don't even know that one fact, that what you give away to a 403B and a charitable organization, you get a tax write-off for it? I mean, yeah, there's, there's a few people that don't. I mean, I'll, I'm always a little bit surprised because I think about it every day, but, yeah, there's a lot of people that... <laughs> don't fully understand that. But What else would you say about generosity that comes to your mind, just how to become more a generous person as a lifestyle? Yeah. Um, what have you learned? What have you seen? What do you kind of teach your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a lifestyle, there's, a, there's kind of an illustration that I like to think about, and it's, I have never been to Israel, but I know there's a, a handful of people here that have gone on trips recently. Anybody Israel lately? A few of you. Todd and Denise, I know you guys were there, but um, it's kind of a, it's a traditional, almost a proverb or just an illustration they use over there. But if you're there, you have the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And you might have heard this before, know, know where I'm going. But basically, the Sea of Galilee is this amazing, you know, fresh, not fully fresh water, but this beautiful body of water. There's fish, there's life. Everything around the banks of it is green and lush and growing. And then, you know, not that far south, you have the Dead Sea, which is like the lowest place on Earth. It's literally like 10 times as salty as the ocean. There's nothing living in it. The banks around it are just like rock-hard salt formations. And you just kind of look at it and you go, you know, that's murky and that's ugly. But the only difference between those two bodies of water is that the Sea of Galilee has a entrance at the top where water comes in and it has an exit at the bottom where water goes out. So you've got movement coming in, going out. The, the Dead Sea has a little opening at the top, but there's literally nowhere for the water to go. So it comes in, it sits there, it just gets stuck and murky and nasty. And, and so for me, that's like an illustration of generosity, right? Those of us that, that have been generous, that know what it's like, God's word tells us that those that are generous are going to flourish, that their lives are going to be beautiful. It's just a picture of somebody that's holding on and not giving. I mean, think about like a posture of just being kind of closed and tight and holding versus being open-handed and letting the Lord bring things in one end and then you. So I love that picture. Yeah, it's something excellent. that yeah just continues to encourage me. Um, and then there's a couple of phrases that I really... Like, I repeat these to myself when I give, and I was doing this just recently because it 
with three kids, saving for education, there's always that temptation to go, well, I just want to save more. And planning, it's weird when you're, when you're planning and helping people how often I think about money and how easy it is for me to find myself drifting into the you know, opposite direction of what Paul's writing to Timothy about here. Um, so there's just like a few phrases that I found that encourage me. And um, one is, God doesn't want anything from me. He wants something for me. Tithing is trusting. Tithing equals trusting. And if you stay in the boat, you'll never walk on water. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Stay in the boat, you'll never walk on water. So that's just like a reminder for me to, to step out, to be bold, to profess my faith in Jesus through the way I use my money and trust that he's got something amazing on the other end of it for me. Like he, he pretty much promises that in, in his word. A lot of times we don't take him up on it, but I just want to believe that, you know, that's true and that he's going to sound very sound wisdom. Thanks, George. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Thank you. So how do you get there? How do you become the Galilee, the sea of Galilee with the, the inlet and the outlet? How do you, how do you get there? Three things. Think these things through. Here's the cliff notes. Money is a means, not an end. We have to see the first thing that he's saying is that the pursuit of righteousness and godliness and all of these things, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. What Paul is saying is that money is simply a means to a better end. Not It is not the end itself to true contentment. You want to be content as a person, you have to shift your perspective. That's number one. We are so conditioned to think that money is our contentment, and it's not. And that's what you were referring to, that we think. And we think the more we have, the more content, the more, sat, the more secure we'll be, and that's not true. I mean, and, and how does he do that? Well, look at what he does. He simply says, for you brought, you brought nothing into the world, and you can't take anything out of it. You brought nothing in. You can't take anything with you. Think of that. I have really thought, sat down and thought about that. And my first thought was watching both my parents pass away, my mom and my dad. And as they died, that moment that they died, everything they had was no longer theirs. They left everything behind. I mean, I think of my, like, really cool knife that I have. You know, I'm not going to slip that into my pocket right before I die or hang on to these really cool, like, Italian leather, you know, whatever, the wallabies or whatever I'm wearing, I don't know. But I really like these shoes, and I ordered them online, and they're really cool, but I'm leaving them behind. This hippie tree shirt, it's gone. Someone else is going to own it, wear it, or it's going to get thrown away. I mean, really think about that. Everything you have is going to be put in a box and given to the Goodwill or the Salvation Army. Your kids will distribute it. It's gone. It's no longer yours. You're not going to write another check. You're not going to um, check your, your bank statements one more time. You're not going to, like, put something in the safe deposit. You're not going to look for your passport. Where's my passport? I can't go anywhere. With my it's all gone. And that should change our perspective in terms of what we're holding on to and what we're giving away. Does that make sense? That, what that does in my mind is actually clicks me into a gear of 
making sure that generosity is a way of life so that if I live that way of life, at the end of my life, I look back and recognize what I really valued and I'll be far more content. I will be. It's tied to that. It's good. But something deeper is at play in this, this idea. Just one more thought on this. And that is this godliness. Godliness is Godwardness. That's what it means. Literally to be God, facing Godward. Imagine God. We often feel like God's above us and he's looking down on us. Or we think of Jesus maybe being on our side. The idea of godliness is that God is in front of us. And, and as you look out at your life and your possessions and your relationships and what you do with your life, you're looking through a lens of God, that God's right there. So everything you do and think and say, and the way you live your life, it's through the lens of God. That's being godly. In other words, God's helping you get a new perspective to bring contentment. And the only way to do that is to live a generous life, recognizing you're going to leave it all behind anyway. That's number one. Number two, as I said before, is an over-concentration. Oh, by the way, I had a great illustration for that, this idea, because you'll take nothing with you, is Pablo Escobar. He was the richest drug cartel kingpin in history, right? I mean, amazing wealth. And he stored his wealth. He had so much money. You know where he put it? He didn't put it in the bank. He put it in his walls, the walls of his house, because he didn't know where to put all this money. He had billions of dollars. And he started putting it in the walls of his house. And his brother, after he died, said basically, essentially, 10% of his wealth, $2.1 billion a year, was eaten by rats. I think God has a sense of humor. 10% of his money was destroyed by rats, eaten, completely ruined by the elements. He couldn't even hold onto it when he was alive. And he died a penniless man, shot down, running from the DEA in his own hometown. I mean, what a sad, sad life that he lived, thinking that he had it all, and he ended up with nothing, and not even an eternal future. I mean, I don't know, but I, I suspect and I think what God is saying is that godliness or God-word living is done by living generously, which brings contentment. It's the only way. Our truest contentment is going to come through a generous life. Number two, over-concentration. Well, Paul now looks at this, and he uses very strong language. Do you see this? If we have, after, if we have food and covering, it's enough. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and snare and many foolish, harmless desires which plunge men into ruin. For the love of money is the root of all evil. He's going after it, isn't he? You're going to get snared. You're going to be tempted. You're going to fall into the root, of the, the root of evil if you love it too much. I mean, this is going to destroy your life. And if you have it, by longing for it, you've wandered away from your faith and have pierced with many griefs. How about that? I mean, seriously. We have to really reshape and think our relationship to all that we have, if that's, if, if, that, if, if an over-concentration of it leads to that, we have to rethink that. Um, there is a scene in the Lord of the Rings that I love. Lord of the Rings was remarkable. Did anybody read it? 
J.R.R. Tolkien rolled this series, and basically, essentially, the whole thing is about the power of the ring and the need to destroy it because of its influence and its evil power and influence of controlling the soul. And anyone that got Schmeagel got a hold of the ring, killed his friend Deagle over the ring, and then Bilbo finds it. And then he has to leave and go on a journey for the rest of his life and leave the ring behind because it had so much power of his life. And this is the interesting thing. The scene that I like is the scene when, and, 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 and as Tolkien writes it, Gandalf, the great wizard, comes to Bilbo before he leaves and wants to make sure he leaves the ring behind. And then Frodo, of course, is going to take the, the ring and destroy it. And that's the whole story, the trilogy. But in this one scene, Bilbo can't give up the ring. You know it. He can't give it up. He keeps, it, oh gosh, it's still, it's still, it puts it on the mantle and it ends up in his pocket. He's leaving on his life journey and he can't give it up. He's so attached to it, he knows he has to separate from it or it will ruin him forever. And so he finally, and, and he hands it, and in the, in the movie, he hands it to Gandalf, and Gandalf says, oh, no, I'm not touching it. And Gandalf is the great, wise, powerful white wizard that won't even touch the ring because he knows its power and its influence. He knew its limits. He knew his limits. And in the book, he actually takes it, and he throws it in the fire for, for, for Frodo to see what was written on it, one ring to rule the wall, and explains to him that he's got to take this ring and go on a journey and get rid of it because of the power, the influence. And it's a remarkable section of early in the Fellowship of the Rings. But, but it has that kind of power and control over us. So it's a radical rethinking. And the final thing that I want to end, end this morning with is this, and here it is. Generosity is the only attitude to a, toward a, for a, uh, a antidote, antidote to a squandered life. Generosity is the only antidote. Until we become generous people, the potential of living the squandered life. What, where do I get that? Well, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on to God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is indeed life indeed. So what Paul is doing is he's instructing a lifestyle of generosity that avoids a life of living a squandered life and having now an eternal life of reward. In other words, what you do in this life counts for eternity. That's what he's saying. It says that you carry forward the life that you lived. Um, John Newton wrote The Amazing Grace, you know, beautiful song. He was a songwriter. And he wrote many letters to people that, um, that wrote to him. And one particular young man wrote a, um, wrote a note to uh, John Newton and asked him this question. How much now as a new Christian should I give to the church? And here's what John Newton said. He says, you have three things. You have necessities, you have conveniences, and you have luxuries. Three things, necessities, conveniences, and luxuries. Separate out those three things. Meet your necessities, 
enjoy your conveniences, and when it comes to luxuries, for every cent you spend on yourself, spend the same amount on the poor. So this guy writes back to John Newton and says, well, that's about 25% of my income. Is that safe? Shouldn't I be saving more for the future? And John Newton writes back, the scriptures show a more excellent way. Getting back to what George said, the word of God brings about a conviction about this like nothing else. And he takes them to one verse, Proverbs 19. You have to see this verse before we end this morning. Proverbs 19. And I, I just have, I must have missed this. And when I saw this verse, it gave me, it just gave me a sense of freedom. It says this, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. When you give as a generous person, you're lending that money to the Lord. And the rest of it says, and he, that is God, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. How about that? So here's, here's how I would illustrate it. Um, if you lent me some money, I asked you for some money. Would you lend me some money? But you knew for certain that I would pay you back. Would you lend me that money? You probably would. You'd think about it. You know it's coming back. You know I'm good for it. You are certain that I'm good for it. That's exactly what the proverb is saying about giving to the poor. God, it's like giving a loan to the Lord. You are lending money to God when you live a generous life. Everything you do with your generosity is lending to the Lord. And guess what? He gives it back. And I believe he gives it back tenfold in so many unique ways. I want to end with challenging us even deeper than our money. It's far more than a check. It's a lifestyle generosity. It's far more than just your financial contributions. It's your life. And I think what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 6 is to re, to re uh, perspective your entire life around this idea that contentment and fulfillment and eternal fulfillment comes through a life of generosity you're giving. That's what he's saying. When I think of my three kids, I was just um, getting in the car this morning, and I'm going to end with this. I was walking to get in the car to get to the beach, and my neighbors, and they often stop, they're walking their dogs about three, four times a day. And uh, they don't have any kids, but they really have come to know us and, and know our kids. And they asked how, how my son was doing, how our son was doing, and, and his teaching career. And, and it caught me by surprise, but I, it, I connected with this message in a unique way. It's like the, it was like an aha moment. The Spirit of God showed up, and I was filled with all this emotion. I was thinking of all of our kids, but I was thinking of Brooke, Brittany, and Theo, our three children, and George and Matt and our, daughter, our daughter-in-law, Nadine, and how much they give of their life to others. And, um, you know, Brooke is a teacher at Biola now, a part-time teacher, and she mentioned the first time she taught, there was a, a, a line of young college students wanting to talk to her after class. I just, I, 
was, I was filled with joy to see her on a college campus giving back and having these young women wanting to ask her a question. I think of my daughter, Brittany, and her ministry to Young Life and how she helps the Los Angeles Young Life ministry thrive through her skills and abilities and supports all these individuals. She's just given her life. And then my son in a classroom, I said, you know, it really makes me cry sometimes because um, he's got kids in his class. He's got four levels of engineering that he teaches. But then at lunchtime, he's got kids that don't even go attend one of his classes that show up for lunch. And they want to sit in his classroom. He attracts kids because of what he's been through because he's a generous person. Um, there was a, there's a young, young student that he had that transitioned. And she transi he transitioned to a female. And he respected her. And she was one of the sharpest engineering students he had. And at the end of the four years at graduation ceremony, this young lady came up to my son and said to him, I will never forget you. You made such an impact in my life. He respected her. He honored her. He gave to her. He gave, he gave her dignity um, among the other students. And I, it, it just, that's a remarkable thing. That's a generous thing. I, I believe that's what Jesus would do. I think Jesus would love, he would be tender, and he would care for the soul of every person. It, it, that's living a generous life for others. Standing alone and living in a sense of a level of high level of contentment with what you have because all you have is from God and whatever you give out is just simply returned to you in a good life. And I want us to transition to a good life. I want us to become people transformed into generous givers with all that we have. Let's pray. So Father, as we go to um, communion this morning, We are reminded that um, ultimately this, this whole idea of generosity came from you, Jesus, when you gave and offered up your life. And so when we take the communion this morning as it's passed out, we are reminded of your gift. And may, as we, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, I pray that it would be a, a reminder of us of generosity that comes and flows through you and your life to us so that we might extend it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you receive the communion, I'll just go ahead and close us and then we'll have some time of worship, just a song of worship. Please take the, the bread and the cup. And when you're ready, I want to encourage you just to take it and to have a moment of fellowship with Jesus that he has offered himself for us as a demonstration of the greatest act of generosity.
Ron, sorry to interrupt, but I'm on a new mic trying to work it out. All right, let's sing that again, all of these worlds. All of these worlds, your hands make a billion stars stretched out in space. These are just echoes of your grace, Jesus. We
God, in every action, every word, all that we do, in our giving, in our receiving, Lord, may you be glorified above all else. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. Thank you for this truth. Your mercy overflows. Your blessing is a river. On it goes. Be the endless fountain for us, Jesus. We rely on you. We love you, God. Presence go with us. May your presence be all around us. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for worshiping you guys. If you want to hear more about Alex and Millie, they're in the back. With